The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. again it's his show it's brandon Hello, welcome back to the show today i invite film critic and writer molly henry to discuss the 1970 dario argento film the bird with the crystal plumage but first a little show note this is the first episode of the show i'm recording since it debuted If a few points made up till now sound dated, or if you think I'm ignoring feedback, it's because the show wasn't out yet. When the first three weeks were recorded, your hint is I have a beard on the video ones, so that's your hint. Speaking of feedback, I'm not above acknowledging that on The Brandon Peters Show, sometimes mistakes are made. For instance, when in response to our first music video review for Paula Abdul's Opposites Attract with Scott Middleton from Forbes, listener Jennifer G. shares... Rush Rush was not on Forever Your Girl, but her follow-up album, Spellbound. Jennifer, you are 100% correct, as we were 100% wrong. Thank you for that. We can clearly see Scott Mendelson is the Forbes box office analyst and not the Billboard Hot 100 analyst. And now, onto the show. My guest today is the creator of the website, The Blogging Banshee, a tomato meter approved critic with contributions to such publications as Fangoria, We Are Horror, and Certified Forgotten. I'm honored to welcome to The Brandon Peters Show, Molly Henry. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Welcome to the show. You are the first, I mean, if people listened to all of my stuff before, you're new to me and I'm (laughs) going to get to know you. So that's great. I'm very excited about new people. Let's go back. We don't need to learn about birth and what school you went to, what year you graduated. Let's start with the blogging Banshee. Is that that was your first foray into just online writing? Yes, it was. I started my website in January of 2015. So this year was the five-year anniversary. It kind of started because I'm the annoying person while watching a horror movie where most of the time I can guess what's going to happen. (laughs) And so I'd be watching a movie with my husband or whatever, and I'd be like, oh, I I bet this is what's going to happen next. And then it would happen. And he got annoyed with me. I was like, why don't you just write horror films? And I'm not comfortable enough at this point with doing that. So I was like, you know, maybe I'll at least start putting my thoughts down. And the idea of contributing to other places at that point wasn't even on my radar. So I was just like, you know, I'm going to start my own little website just so I can have a place to put my thoughts and random friends can view it. And it ended up kind of, I don't want to say blowing up because I I mean, I'm not famous or anything like that, but it grew quite a bit from there. And then three or four years ago, somewhere in that range, I started co-hosting a podcast with a fellow horror lover. And that was kind of when I started being able to do more coverage for film festivals and things like that. And that kind of kicked that off. Even though the podcast didn't last very long, it definitely helped spring me into other things. And then about two years ago is when I started contributing to other websites as well. Did they reach out to you to contribute or did you 
inquire or just networking? It was a little bit of both. I would say a lot of them were ones where I would see that they were looking for writers. So I would send in a pitch. There have been a couple that reached out to me. One of my regular columns, Uterus Horror, used to be for Fangoria. And then when everything this year happened with them, Certified Forgotten was nice enough to offer me a new home for the article. And they've been amazing and super supportive. And I'm really excited about October now since (laughs) we're already planning what that one's going to be. So it's been kind of a mix of people asking me and me just pitching anywhere that I think might want my writing. (laughs) That's great. So you took your husband. So you're like, okay, you said write horror. What about write about horror? Yes. The word about (laughs) So horror, that's been a lifelong love of yours, or did you have to come into it? Claim Nightmare on Elm Street was the Mm -hmm. gateway? When I was four years old. So it's pretty much been my entire life. My first film-related memory is A Nightmare on Elm Street when I was four. I mean, I, I know I probably grew up on Disney and stuff too, but that is the first vivid memory that I have related to a movie. That's awesome. You're talking about with your article, Uterus Horror. Yeah. That is a book waiting to happen. That is a study that is, tell people about that because I'm a big fan of this article. It's funny. It actually went through a really long process before it became a regular column. It was initially pitched as a book and then it was going to be a podcast and then it became a column. But it's funny. I think I've talked about this before, but I, the idea of Uterus Horror started with an internet meme on Twitter. (laughs) You've probably seen it because there have been a lot of variations of it where it's like the cartoon lunchroom with the different tables and they'll have different groupings. Sometimes it's groupings of music or movies. Mm, Oh, yeah. You have to say which table you're going to sit at. There was one like that where one of the tables had Ginger Snaps, Carrie, and Jennifer's body. And that was kind of when it clicked for me. I was like, holy shit, there's this whole subgenre specific to young women either going through puberty or coming into their sexuality for the first time. And it doesn't have a name. And I mean, people talk about those individual films because they're amazing, but no one's really taken a look at collectively what the different themes are in those kinds of films. So I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, (laughs) I'm going to do that. It's brilliant. Like it is something like when I, I think I first saw your ginger snaps one, but I I was like, that's genius. Somebody's going to get a book out of that. And apparently it's, maybe it's going to go the reverse way. It's going to be articles, yeah. <laughs> into book. Hopefully, like that is, I think it's brilliant. I think it's a great study. And I can't wait to see which which ones enter your canon of uterus horror. It's an exciting thing to yeah. see every month. There's a lot of them, too. Through my research, I realized there are so many films, especially just in the past 10 years, that fit into that category. Mm-hmm. And I purposely named it uterus horror to piss men off. Sorry, <laughs> men. Well, I'm sorry I didn't get pissed. I was... <laughs> Sorry, no, I mean, it's it pisses off a specific right, group. Right, right. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> You're kind of in the realm I am. Like, what, what aspirations do you hope to get? Where do you go from here? I know you have Blogging Banshee on, like, pause right now. Yes. It's always your home base. Which, although I just, <laughs> I'm probably going to unpause it for <laughs> a specific film festival that I forgot I had applied to before I paused it. But <laughs> Fair enough. Um, <laughs> Back in 2018, I earned my master's degree in professional creative writing. So kind of behind the scenes, I've been working on fiction writing as well. So what I'm working towards is what I was hoping to have more time with by pausing my website, which hasn't worked for me yet, (laughs) is to be able to complete a collection of short horror stories and eventually find a publisher for those, obviously. And then I also have 
one or two ideas for either short film scripts or feature film scripts. I'm, I'm finally feeling like I might be ready to do that. <laughs> hey, it's good stuff. If it's in there, get it out. Get yeah. it out. Even if it looks sloppy, you got it out. You can move on. It's good, but I don't, I don't think yours should be sloppy. Uh, <laughs> and always leave that blogging banshee. It's a home base. Yes. Tell me about it, eh? What's that? What happened? I want to know everything you saw and heard. Everything. Monica. Come on now, come on. Take go of me! I'm Alberto Ranieri. She's my wife. Excuse me. Monica, speak to me. What happened? Please, you're tiring her. Monica. Oh. Dear, who did it? Who? I've run through it over and over again. I can't get it out of my head, but I can't manage to pin it down either. Let me finish. He isn't even Italian, and you're making him risk his life. Somebody's already tried to kill him once. And what makes you so sure they won't try again? You're blackmailing him. going to talk the bird with the crystal plumage today so let's bring in the perverts as they say (laughs) the bird with the crystal plumage is written and directed by dario argento and stars tony Musante, Susie kendall who you might recognize from torso and spasmo a couple other giallo films enrico maria salerno ava renzi and umberto rejo and it tells the tale of an American writer on a long holiday in Rome who witnesses an attack late one night in an art gallery that is in connection with a recent series of serial murders. Coming in, we went through a list kind of a movies to pick to talk about. What's your familiarity with Argento or Giallo or the Italian film productions of the 70s and 80s coming in? I don't know if I'm super familiar with the production side of it, but I mean, I love Argento films. I actually, I'm kind of slowly working through his entire filmography right now. I mean, I'd seen a chunk of them, but kind Mm -hmm. of in the middle. So I actually had just watched Bird with a Crystal Plumage maybe three months ago Okay, for the first time. And honestly, it's probably one of my favorites of his. I love this one. It's really good. Personally, I've been waiting to talk about... When you chose this, I was like, I don't get to talk about the Italian stuff much. And I'm kind of late bloomered to it a bit. I watched them as recommends on VHS tapes when I was a kid. And I was like, I don't get this. All the weird <laughs> dubbing. And they were on crappy VHS. And then when I worked in at IQC in Burbank, we had Blue Underground. And they put these out. And Anchor Bray, they put these out like crazy. So I was forced to watch them. And I started getting more of an appreciation for them. And then when they come on Blu-ray, I'm like, man, these are kind of beautifully shot they look really mm-hmm. nice and so i became a big fan i always liked suspiria and uh, others argento was easier for me than a lot of the other directors like martino yeah. and stuff but yeah this is his first film written and directed he worked with leone before and he comes to this one and this got him labeled the italian hitchcock by a lot of people and it's easy to see kind of why yeah 
Uh, it's also the first color film of Vittorio Storaro, who is the preferred cinematographer of Warren Beatty and Bernardo Bertolucci, who also this guy shot Apocalypse Now. So wow, he, he shot this, and then later in the decade he shoots Apocalypse Now. So this is kind of good. And before before this, are you? Did you watch any Bava yet on that train? Only maybe two okay. at this point. <laughs> not not as much. Most of my Italian horror has been Argento. Okay. Baba, he had like Blood and Black Lace and then this movie called Evil Eye, but it's also Girl Who Knew Too Much, which those were like the first Jallo-y ones. And then this one took it to like that next level. So those are like the Halloween and this one gets Friday the 13th where it booms after this. It's a movie turns voyeurism on its head a bit, like before this. So like there's the, the leering, watching these things, but they turn into murders, which teases you with the sexuality of watching something, but then also you know, stabs or kills somebody. And I think he does a lot of his attacks in better taste than a lot that would follow after this. I can see this one getting lumped in with many of those movies where it's like, ooh, exploiting women and all this. But I think there's better taste in this one, even though, I mean, there's some weird things. But I think one of the more aggressive scenes is only done that way to throw you off from who the killer is, the way he shoots it. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think... Even in the shots where they show the crime scene photos, mm-hmm. they don't really show that much. They'll show suggestions yes. of what was happening. Like you'll see the pantyhose down around the ankles or something to kind of suggest what may or may not have happened mm-hmm. during the murder. And it definitely, he does take, I mean, I think that might, I, I don't want to say it's an Italian sensibility, but that's basically what I'm going to say. But I feel like it's, I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this. I feel like, European cinema takes things like violence and nudity in a much classier way than American films, especially at the time, probably did, especially with this kind of subject matter. Because like you said, like Friday the 13th, that franchise definitely takes it in a different direction. Yeah. Like, because a lot of stuff in here, I'm like, man, the fashion's awesome. Everybody looks really pretty. And like the guys look, the guys look like Tony Musante, he looks like a stud in this. And they go except for like some of the other side character guys. They aren't. Yeah. <laughs> the best look- I guess they aren't the best looking. I, I kind of have a thing for that, like sixties into seventies. The kind of psychedelic into the hippie stuff looks really cool in Rome in nineteen seventy. I guess mm-hmm. he does it in a way. The murder that I was speaking of, where the woman's at home and the killer follows her in, and she's getting ready for bed, and he rips her shirt up. It doesn't come fully out. And mm-hmm. then we're led to believe she's stabbed between the legs. We don't see that. It's just implied. Yeah. And for one, the, you can see her nipples through her shirt. But I feel like if this wasn't restored HD, you might not be able to see that. Yeah, honestly, it's probably true. Especially because fabric barely covers it to begin with. Mm-hmm. But then the fabric, like you said, is sheer. But you're not focusing on her boobs because she's being strangled. Right. <laughs> so, so unless you're active, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of young boys that were actively looking for it and probably young women also. But <laughs> it's not as much in the forefront, in the frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's happening. But there's also hands around the throat yeah. at the same time. So he does a really good job of drawing your focus to where it needs to be no matter what's happening on the screen. He has a really great sense of blocking. Mm-hmm, yeah. I, I honestly don't know if that's what the term they use in film. I was a theater kid, so to me it's blocking. I, I know what you mean. I did, yeah, <laughs> I did theater, I gotcha. <laughs> um, 
So even in that scene with the opening where he comes across the attempted murder at the art gallery, mm-hmm. at first you don't really see anything. You just see movement. And it's right. again, he has such a good sense of angles that it's the suggestion of what's going on. That if you walked by something like that and you saw lots of movement going around in this big open window, you would look. And it kind of goes to that voyeuristic yeah, aspect exactly. of and it, it too. Plays, let's go right from there. The witness at the beginning. This this whole movie plays on male prejudice of everything because <laughs> the perspective angle is he would never think a woman would be the person attacking. And then the police never think of a woman as a suspect. Yeah. And they're totally way off on this case because they aren't even looking for a female. They're looking for a slender man with the build of a female, but they never even think of it. And that's part of part of the problem with it and they and part of how he's able to play with your expectations. And it's just kind of funny how that works out. The women are the victims of a woman as mm-hmm. well. And I mean when you see that scene, anybody, I mean I mean woman watching it would think that too. I remember the first time I saw it, what made the movie just for me was the brilliance of the perspective angle. Seeing that scene, the opening that attack is great and then the revelation of, "Oh, it's not quite what I saw." And it and it works even if the ending goes gung-ho or whatever a lot of these this one ends up pretty clean compared to a lot of giallo movies where they yes. have their resolution <laughs> this one's this one's pretty neat and tidy in comparison but I, I really that's what makes the movie is just and that's where he gets the hitchcock thing is that brilliance of the just the perspective and the guy going nuts about it that's something that i love about argento films in general too is that i feel like he was very much ahead of his time not just in his filmmaking style but in how he created characters he makes a point of saying that they call the character a transvestite, which mm-hmm. obviously isn't the proper term now, but saying the transvestite doesn't belong with the perverts right. and having gay characters and not having it be weird. Yeah. And they're just he, his life. Yeah. yeah. And it's even, he does the same thing with his female characters. They, I feel like a lot of his female characters play to what men expect of them but really they're the strongest characters and show that they're capable of doing anything a man can do. In this case, it's murder. (laughs) But it's something like, obviously, Suspiria does a lot of the same thing where it's women who are in power. And Mm -hmm. in this, it's even though we don't like that this woman is murdering, the fact that when she has that break, she identifies with the aggressor rather than the victim. Because I, I mean, I guess I should say what I'm talking about since we're not holding back spoilers, but there, yeah. he was assaulted as a child and almost murdered and had to get psychological help for that. And then for a long time, she was fine until she sees a painting that depicts the attack on her and it triggers another psychotic break. The fact that she associates with the aggressor is very interesting to me. And I feel like it's almost, even though she's going about it a wrong way, it's almost like she's taking her power back Mm -hmm. in a way. And I love that. I feel like that's a theme in a lot of Argento's work. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's very very unappreciated in that because a lot of people take what he's doing for granted or just like throw him with the rest of them. There's there's a lot of guys that are more mean-spirited in that genre and he's not... He's not one of them, I don't think. I mean, he's got some movies with some ugly yeah. stuff in it, but I don't think it comes from a, an ugly place for mm-hmm. him or a exploitative place. And he also deals, I mean, this is a whole story about male impotence like going on. <laughs> like this guy is seeking his hero moment from the introduction. Like he's this guy who's this writer. He's like, I'm going to go to Italy and finally solve my writer's block. And he can't. He's writing bird manuals. 
and getting a <laughs> cheap check for it. And he's returning. He's given up. He tries to save Monica at the beginning and he gets shut in the glass case and can't do anything but sit and scream for help. This one, but he's trying to save the day at the end even and he can't. He's trapped under a giant piece of art and he's, he's saved by a woman at the end too. There's a little thing maybe with him and his girlfriend that might be going on too where he's having trouble in bed, but that's implied if you want it there or not. But that this whole story is about just this guy not being able to to be able to, you know, he's struggling with the impotence, but then finally accepting that, hey, maybe I don't have to be this <laughs> kind of guy in the end as he goes back to America <laughs> with his girlfriend. Which I have to say also, the first time I watched this film, I suspected early on that it was a woman. But I honestly, up until the scene where the killer comes for the girlfriend at the apartment, mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be the girlfriend. Oh, well, yeah. kind of. There's a weird red herring there where the guy, the detective's like, have I seen you before? Mm-hmm. Like, well, and even when he brings the copy of the painting home and puts it on the wall, there's that weird long drawn out scene where they're hugging and she's really creepily staring at the painting. And the moment she sees it, she's affected by it. And it's like, oh, I don't like that. I don't know if it was intentional that we were supposed to think that it could be her, especially since for the most part, it seems like we're supposed to assume that a man did it. But I definitely right. up until the killer comes and tries to kill her. I was convinced that she was the killer. There you go. Yeah, I do. I do like her. It's been complained that she doesn't have much to do, but I like, I like her helping him with the case. It's kind of uh, adorable. And then she has that great scene where you think she's going to, I mean, she's getting attacked slowly in the apartment as a trauma. And it's like a real door. It's not just like shattering through, slowly putting the knife through the hole. And that's just an intense scene where you think she's done for, but nope. All that intensity and she's safe, but <laughs> yeah, but it meant like I, I cared about her, I guess. So I guess she's not that hollow. Like I, I didn't want to see something bad happen to her, but that was a great sequence, I thought. And Argento's got a lot of good point of view and lighting and stuff with that scene as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I did notice there's only two points of view in the movie. It's Sam and the killer. So we only see the movie from their eyes. And one time the killer from the killer's eyes on Sam a couple times mm-hmm. as well. I love that. I love that first person point of view, especially when it's funny because like I said, I only saw this film for the first time a few months mm-hmm. ago. And I think it was the opening scene is one of the first victims being photographed by the killer. And we're seeing through the camera lens as they're snapping the pictures. And as soon as that scene happened with the music, I was like, oh, death proof. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. Death Proof is my favorite Tarantino movie. and Oh, really? Yeah, awesome. 100%. And there's a scene where Stuntman Mike is photographing the second group of women. It's the same thing. It's the same oh, yeah. music. It's the same shot through the camera and with it clicking on them. I didn't pick up on that. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you're obsessed with Death Proof. <laughs> I love this. I We did a commentary on Death Proof last year, I think. But I, I, I'll, I'll read it. I'll tell you because you don't know me and you've never heard me say this. But it's been claimed that that's Tarantino weakest movie or worst movie I'm like his worst movie is would be the best movie for like 99% of directors out there yeah. so I, that film is very impressive I hate to say this I'd like not to bring the sexist card into this but I feel like a lot of women it's their favorite Tarantino film that's fair that's it's a, I, I enjoy the heck out of Death Proof You're, yeah. I'm not that guy <laughs> I, I'm not I've, I've been since I saw it saw it at the Chinese theater opening weekend and I was Everybody was Planet Terror that weekend. I was Death Proof. That was yeah. That was so, good. and it gets better every time you watch it. It mm-hmm. really does. To 
plug myself a little bit. I love what? that film so much that I wrote an article in the first issue of the We Are Horror zine okay. about Death Proof and how it is actually a really great rape revenge film. Oh, without dang. actually explicitly having rape in it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No, the themes and the stuff, it's all there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Which it's, it's funny because I don't think I had seen this movie when I wrote that article. Maybe I oh, had, okay. I can't remember. Or maybe it was around the same time that I wrote it. So I didn't make the connection, but this film in a way is also a rape revenge film. Not in the way that we're used to seeing, but... Right. They spare us having to watch it. (laughs) Well, and it's the revenge isn't on the killer, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Because that's obviously why we like rape revenge films is because we want to see the bad guys get what's coming to them. True. At least in her mind, she's getting some kind of... (laughs) Not necessarily revenge, but some kind of power from it. There She's getting her power back. I watch this movie every time and I want more of her in it, mm-hmm. but it's kind of good that they, I guess they don't, but I, I really like what the actress is bringing and she's got a real iconic look to her kind of. Yes. I mean, maybe just the fashion again. I just, and her laugh. Her oh, yeah. laugh at the end when it, like she finally reveals to Sam, is his name, finally reveals to him that it, she's the one that's killer. Her laugh is amazing i am all about a good evil laugh and she mm-hmm. pulls it off so well oh it's maniacal it's great i love her craziness go for it that's mm-hmm. that's what i'm saying i really like the chase scene with the hitman where they had the kind of the chase and then the reversal mm-hmm. on it that I, I like the way he shot that perspective when this guy just gets dropped off by the killer to kill our main character tony Vasante, and he ends up running into a chase he gets into a crowd and then he it turns when the the hitman gets there and it's a crowded street and the hitman then turns to walk away to get away from it and then tony Masanti follows him and he finds out he's some ex-boxer and here's another anti-masculinity thing he go into this boxer convention where they're all talking about like the health problems and <laughs> weekend and stuff so it's kind of a nice little flip upside down as well which that actually kind of plays into what you're talking about of how he keeps wanting to be the hero of the story mm-hmm. because why the hell he ran to the crowd and was like hey some guy is chasing me trying to kill me but then mm-hmm. when he sees him turn around the corner and walk off instead of having these people come help him he runs off on his own to follow the guy yeah he slowly follows him yeah, yeah. and it's so it's he clearly wants to be the hero he doesn't want any help in catching this guy who just tried to kill him mm-hmm. which is absolutely idiotic right <laughs> The guy was just trying to shoot you. Maybe get some help. <laughs> right. There's another wild thing we haven't talked about. The the artist guy, the big red herring, the guy who drew the painting. Mm-hmm. He goes fine and he eats cats. I feel like that's very typical Italian horror of the time. Mm-hmm. There's always one thing that just does not make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I get going there to get the the context and the exposition of what happened in the past and to learn about the painting. Mm -hmm. But to have him be this weird hermit that has walled himself up in his house and he eats cats is just... Takes it to a whole different level. <laughs> it's like, w- get out of there. Like, w- it's it's an offshoot. It kind of has to happen, but it still stands out in the movie. I did, we go all around here on the show. <laughs> you were talking about how you thought that Susie Kendall was possibly suspect. I noticed something the last time when I watched the movie again for this show. I've seen it many times. The first time I ever noticed, after 
the husband, when he falls out the window and dies at the end because they think it's him, we get this, Argento shoots Tony Musante out with the cops and whatever, and they shoot him so he's got a tall, slender statue, and then he gets a cigarette with his left hand as if to maybe maybe one last time go, maybe he's it. Like, it's, it's kind of a weird... Because they do make a point early on when he visits the husband and he throws him the lighter of the cigarettes and he catches it with his left hand. And he's a the husband's yeah. tall, slender guy. And then Tony Masante at the end, after that guy dies, is tall. He shoots him tall and slender, and then he light, he he gets a cigarette from a guy with his left hand and lights it. And I'm like, yeah. was he trying to get us one more time on that? But clearly, we find out later he's not it. <laughs> ah, overall, I think this is one of like my favorite directorial debuts like I've ever seen. I've never seen somebody so focused and just well done knows what they want confident with this like i it happens few and far between that's why we know argento is one of the greats but it's just fascinating to see how perfect this movie fits together and kind of feels like it's what he wants yeah right from the like if if i didn't know where it fell in his filmography i wouldn't think that it was his first no there are others that came after it i would probably think were his first but not this one <laughs> yeah it's much better than his like follow-up cat of nine tails which i think is all right but yeah, it's it's much better than that. It's neater than Four Flies with Grey Velvet, and then well, Deep Red. Everybody loves that one, so flip a coin with those two. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's a hot start. I like that this is his only one in his animal trilogy that actually has the animal. <laughs> well, yeah, they do. Is there no cat in, in Cat of Nine Tails? I mean, I don't. If there is, it might be in passing. I don't, but it's not integral to the plot right yeah right. The birth, and it's a cool title for all that. i mean all these would go yeah. you'd have all crazy titles trying to fit in like four flies i'm like isn't it flying animal <laughs> like they go to the animal trilogy i'm like what's the third animal flies <laughs> oh okay okay sure i have to say it bugs me that in almost every picture that i've seen or poster for bird with crystal plumage it's not the bird from the film it's they oh. usually depict a peacock. Right, yeah, it's a peacock thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not did you even watch the film? Because that's not what this bird is. Hey, sometimes they didn't with the posters for True, true. And here's a picture of this guy and this guy, and there's murder. So because <laughs> they put the bird like right with the title on the poster, I think. And then there's I think they have the Susie Kendall at the door getting scared on some of them. And then there's the one mm-hmm. in, in Italy, they have the the murder that we talked about a lot at the beginning, that one's depicted on the Italian poster. From what I can remember, bird, bird, bird. Bird is the word. Bird is the word. <laughs> what else? So this is just where we kind of talk what else we've watched recently or what else we might have out there for you to check out in the writing listening, video, whatever world. So Molly, what have you been up to lately? Because I had some time, I actually caught up on some reading most recently. Two that absolutely blew me away were When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole. Absolutely fantastic thriller. I bought it because I saw someone describe it as Get Out meets Rear Window. Oh, And Rear Window is my favorite Hitchcock. So, <laughs> And Get Out obviously is amazing. And I think with the political climate that we're in, I think it's a really great read in general. But it also like the suspense was really good and how it builds upon itself. 
And it definitely has like a perfect vibe of those two films put, put into book form. And then the other one is Video Palace, The Search for the Eyeless Man. This is a Shudder book that is actually, I guess you could kind of describe it as a sequel to their podcast called Video Palace. Okay. I hate to say I hadn't heard of the podcast before I got the book, but I listened to the podcast beforehand. Absolutely scared the shit out of me. It's one of those ones where it's telling a story. It's a guy who's investigating these weird white tapes and the weird things surrounding them. Chase Williamson does the voice of the main character in the podcast. And then the book, it's almost formatted like it's an academic research book. And it's a professor who's researching the eyeless man, Mm -hmm. who is someone that pops up a lot in connection to the white tapes. And he's doing his own investigation. But throughout, it has multiple short stories written by other people like Rebecca McKendry is in there, wow. Bria Grant's in there, like ton of awesome people in the horror community. Graham Skipper has a story in oh, there cool. and it's so well done. I was amazed by it because every story is very different and they all have different writing styles, but there's such a great cohesiveness to it. Mm-hmm. And very few books scare me. And there were a couple in there where I was like, I, I don't know if I want to turn the light out right now and go to bed. Wow. So it was, it's really good. I I was very pleasantly surprised. That reminds me, it sounds like, did you ever read the book House of Leaves? Yes. Kind of reminded me of that. And that, I swear, I lived by myself in an apartment when that was out. And I would read it at night and I swear stuff would happen. Like reading the House of Leaves. I'm like, I closing this book like video palace will give you that same kind of vibe and it'll make you somewhat wary of the media that you consume (laughs) which i don't know if that's a good or bad thing but i did um, oh gosh have you ever have you read uh this is not propaganda mm -mm. oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's a true story but that's a that's a wild one i'm always watching movies i just watched (laughs) brie grant's 12 hour shift I think I just watched that yesterday, which was really fun. Definitely like dark comedy thriller kind of story. This one, I technically watched it probably a month ago now, but I'm going to plug it everywhere I can because I love this movie so much. Do it. It's not even available anywhere yet because it just started its film festival circuit. But the Block Island Sound. Okay. I just watched it when it was at Fantasia Film Fest. Holy shit. Is that movie so good? It's... It's really hard to explain because it's one of the, I mean, I wrote a review for it. So you can read my review if you wanted to, but it's a combination of different subgenres of horror Mm -hmm. and the way they weave everything together and the way they reveal details of what's happening while also kind of having a really tight knit family drama. The McManus brothers wrote and directed it. It's so good. I was so blown away. It was my favorite film that I saw at the festival. And I think I ended up watching like 26 or 27 films at the festival. Um, It might be at least one of my favorites of the year so far. And I mean, it's almost October, so we're getting close to the end. But it's one of those ones where I'm going to continue to watch for when it actually is released because I need it. I need to see it again. (laughs) I love when like new ones come out that you make and you put in the rotation because I'll watch everything and then something will come out like... This is a bigger title, but like it follows. Like I loved it follows. Yes. So now that's in my rotation every year, all the time. And it's nice. I feel like we get more, we're, we're getting better at getting those nowadays more than we used to. Now it's like, oh, every year there's probably like five you could throw in your rotation. At least, I mean, that are great and good ones too. I mean, it's me. I just finished and wrote my review up for Stargirl, the complete first season on Blu ray, which I had to watch for Wife's Little Blue. And 
It's all right. My my kids were really drawn to it. <laughs> I did not expect that. I mean, we do watch like the superhero shows can be our family shows and stuff, but they really like this one a lot. It's very Smallville-ish when you compare it to the other stuff that's around. It's charming. I don't think it's a go seek it out type thing, but if you're looking for something with like a family to watch, that's it's fine. I dropped today when we're recording, which is going to be like a week or two ago, but go check it out anyway. I, I was a person who celebrated the 25th anniversary of Halloween 6, or Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. With a, Yes. That's an important film in my life in, a, in the honest way possible because it was the first time I saw Michael Myers in the theater, and the legacy of the producer's cut taught me a lot about film. Like I knew of extended cuts or added scenes here and there, but I never knew you could change like the whole third act of a movie and change exactly what the heck it was. And so back in 1995, when this came out and I saw the movie, I was confused. I thought maybe I didn't get it. I thought maybe I was like, "Mm, I need to see this again. There's something I'm missing. No, it was hodgepodge thrown together. They wouldn't intend to answer questions. And then I found out the producer's cut my Fangoria magazine. The pictures didn't match stuff that happened in the movie. So I was like, where was this? Where was this part? Because they did a set thing. Because Halloween 6, we laugh now. We go, oh, it's Paul Rudd's early movie. That was like Entertainment Tonight was covering. It was the return of Michael Myers. He'd been gone since 1989. It was still prestigious. And there was this producer's cut. And you had to scour the internet to find someone who had it. It was like a VHS copy of a copy of a copy. It was like The Ring, but with Michael Myers. And I finally got it. And I lived with it forever. Like I forgot the theatrical version out of my mind once I got the producer's cut. I've written about Halloween 6 and my experience with it plenty. So I touched upon it. But I wanted to cover like other films that have had these legendary other cuts that have been either released or still out there that maybe don't exist so i highlight on like i had a i had a special section the ridley scott section because he <laughs> tinkers with his stuff a lot but i covered movies that we've gotten the cuts from like superman 2 the richard donner cut and stuff we haven't like the recent movie the star wars movie solo that movie got a hell of reshot and changed the vibe of it and stuff and a whole another the villain got recasted so there's another way to watch that movie sitting on the ground covered like annie hall there's not what he released. It's like a third of what he shot and what he tried to do. There's so, that out there in the world. So there's like, I mean, there's it fascinates me. So I wrote, that's how I celebrated Halloween 6 of 25. <laughs> and then also I want to plug Out Now with Aaron and Abe. It's October. So I'll be there every week for this month with their horror podcast series. They've begun. It's me, Aaron Neuwirth, James Oster, aka Jimmy O from JoeBelow.com and Jason Coleman for Flicks for Fans. We're doing a subject every week. Week one is diversity and horror. The second week, Friday the 13th, 40th anniversary retrospective. And the next week, Arachnophobia, 30th anniversary retrospective. I finally won Aaron over after fighting for years and years, and this is a good preempt for this. We're doing a giallo Italian horror discussion. Nice. And then (laughs) last, we end it with a commentary for the movie Psycho for its 60th anniversary. Wow, lots of anniversaries. Yeah, it's a big year, big milestone year. Uh, At least we're not like, it's the 32nd anniversary. Real milestones, folks, real milestones. But yeah, so that's what I've got going on. That'll wrap us up for today. Molly, it has been an absolute delight meeting you and talking Argento. Please tell everyone the best places to find where you're doing. Right now, probably the best places to find me are Twitter at BloggingBanshee and on Instagram at Blogging.Banshee. And even though I'm embarrassed to plug this as well, I have become 
embarrassingly involved on TikTok. (laughs) And I'm way too old for that shit, but here we are. So you can find me on there at The Blocking Banshee. All right. And instead of plugging myself, I'm going to plug Molly because you should really follow her on Twitter and Instagram. She's really funny. She's got good ideals and her work's great. So I'm going to skip my plug this week to plug her. And I'll return tomorrow with 4K Blues Day. But until then, remember to keep the positivity in your online film chatter. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. It's a photo of a painting that somehow mixed up in these murders. Looks a bit perverted to me.